Today's episode is brought to you by PrepDish.com, a genius subscription service that sends you weekly real food-based paleo and gluten-free meal plans that include organized grocery lists and detailed meal prep instructions. Now that's a time saver. Give PrepDish a try for two weeks free, and for those two weeks, you'll have the answer to that dreaded daily question, what's for dinner? Right now, PrepDish is offering our listeners a two-week free trial free. Go to PrepDish.com forward slash common sense, all lowercase please. Head on over there right now and give them a try. Hi everybody, this is Jeannie Faulkner and you're listening to Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting and Politics, where we have smart conversations about everything that goes into parenthood, starting way before prenatal care and carrying the conversation well on through the teen years and beyond. Mostly, though, we're talking about prenatal care, pregnancy, feminism, motherhood, politics, health care, and then some. So the first thing I want to do today is let you guys know that most of your pregnancy, prenatal care, birth questions can probably be uh, answered in my book, Common Sense Pregnancy, which is based on all the inside information I gathered in 20 years as a labor nurse, plus a little bit about my experience as a mom and a woman raising kids and a career in the 21st century. I designed the book so that women can refer to it throughout their pregnancies when they need to understand, you know, a specific thing that's happening during their pregnancy, like what's happening at their doctor's appointment or, you know, how they feel about certain tests or, you know, some of the emotional complexities or how to sort out, you know, what interventions to have and which are entirely optional, what to do about, you know, common speed bumps that occur at the end of pregnancy, like having a doctor who wants you to have an induction and you don't think you need it, you know, an ultrasound report that comes up with some sort of a question. You know, some of the stuff I include in the book is the deeply personal stuff, you know, all the changes we go through as we become someone's parents. And I also touch on some of the tough stuff, like when a baby dies or when domestic violence or substance abuse are part of the picture. It's all in the book and you're going to want to have it, you know, on hand back on as a resource guide from time to time. So go buy it, will ya? You can get it, you know, Amazon, Target, wherever books are sold. Um, and you can also pick up a personalized copy over on my website, jeanfaulkner.com. And just, you know, give me the information how you want me to sign it, and I'll send it out the door super fast. Let's see. Also, can I get a you to go on over to Apple Media, find Common Sense Pregnancy Parenting and Politics, and leave me a rockin' hot review, will ya? We're growing the audience and we want more people to get in on this conversation. Positive reviews help a lot. So let's see, you know, the subtext of my book is about taking the fear out of pregnancy and prenatal care. So much of our care, our behavior, our health patterns, um, and the health information that we receive are based on things we're scared might happen even if the likelihood of it happening is super low. We see it all the time in prenatal labor and delivery care. We do tests that lead to other tests just in case a baby might have a super rare condition. We tell women not to eat a turkey sandwich on the super low chance she might contract listeria. Um, 
we tell women not to drink coffee because someone somewhere did a study that said it might be bad. We avoid all kinds of things and opt in for all kinds of other things on the just in case, can't be too careful, better safe than sorry philosophy. And too often we do looking at the consequences of fear and risk-driven healthcare. We're seeing the result of the fear factor healthcare that so many women receive in rising C-section and maternal death rates, which are connected with increased use of just-in-case interventions and surgeries that sometimes don't really... Now, I'm all about switching the paradigm. And instead of based on fear and risks, look at the reality of women's situations and lives and support them as whole women to be their healthiest. If problems are present or arise, deal with them, certainly. But don't treat every pregnancy and every woman as a walking time bomb or potential problem. When that's how all women are treated and how most pregnancy information is skewed, you know, towards what might be wrong with them and their babies or what they should be afraid of, it makes it hard to know what's real, what's myth, and what's total BS. We're going to talk about that with this week's guest, Daphne Adler, a mathematician, management consultant, and author of the new book, Debunking the Bump. Um, Let's take a quick break, and then we'll get Daphne on the line. We're back and ready to chat with Daphne Adler, author of the new book, Debunking the Bump. Let's call her up. Hi, Daphne. How are you? Good, thanks. How are you doing? I am doing good, except for technology scramble day for Friday the 13th. But we're pers- <laughs> we're persisting is what we're doing. Yeah. So, Daphne, I read your, your bio and your job description right before we got you on the line. And I'd like to start out with who are you and what do you do? Sure. So my name's Daphne. I grew up most of my life in Norwich, Vermont, one of three children. And I ended up going to university at Harvard and studying math. And then ever since, I have worked in the management consulting industry here in London. And uh, interestingly, I never thought that I would write a pregnancy book, but I suppose I'm very, very interested in parenting topics. And when I was first pregnant, I read many, many books on the subject and found that I wasn't really satisfied with any of them. So I decided to apply my consulting skills uh, to the topic of pregnancy. Well, you know, you've got the idea of being a mathematician to me is just it's like an unachievable goal. And I know that we all use math all the time, all the time. I'm, I'm one of those people who considers myself math challenged only because it was really hard for me to get through the classes. But I was a really good bedside nurse, nurse, and that's doing math all the time. It's all about the numbers. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, when you think about just how math actually applies to our lives, it kind of shifts our idea about, you know, how good we are at math. So yeah. I admire you right from the start, Daphne, right from the oh, start. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And what do you do when you're not working? When I'm not working, my my three children are keeping me very busy. I have a 10-year-old boy and a 7-year-old girl and then a little 3-year-old girl as well. So I spend a lot of my time chasing after them when I'm not writing books and uh, and doing my day job. So it's yeah. good fun. Yeah, yeah. That's a lot to do. And so... <laughs> I want to talk about your book, but I'm also just kind of curious how you got from Vermont to London. 
Ah, well, that was all the fault of my then boyfriend, now husband, who enticed me across, saying, <laughs> oh, come and spend two years in London, have a nice living abroad experience. Uh, so I came and fell in love with the city. And if you told me when I was 17, I would end up living in London, I would have been completely shocked. But here I am very happily. And how long have you been there? So since 1999. So the years are adding up. I'm not going to say, <laughs> say Ooh, how good old I long am, time. Good yeah, long time. Yeah, good long yeah. time. Yeah. yeah. I hear we have really similar climates. It's gray and gloomy and drizzly almost always, except for when we get bright, blue, beautiful summers. Yeah, that is true. So it's definitely not as snowy as Vermont. I do miss that a little bit. But then again, you can always go out without your hat and gloves. So it's, it's, it's convenient, I would say, even yeah. if it's a little dreary. Yeah, yeah. So you have a new book out, and um, I want to you know, read the Publishers Weekly review real quick, and then let's talk about the book. Cool? Great. Yeah. yeah. So they wrote, in this important book, Adler, a mathematician, management consultant, and self-proclaimed numbers junkie, equips mothers with research data behind recommendations for what to do and not do during pregnancy. That sounds like a pretty good summary of your book. So tell me about it. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the genesis of the book was that when I was pregnant with my first child, I had a colleague who came up to me during lunch and saw that I was sitting eating a plate of spaghetti, which I considered a pretty innocuous food. But he looked horrified and said, don't eat that, please. Uh, and apparently, according to him, it was covered with Parmesan, which was very dangerous during <laughs> pregnancy. So he told me I should throw it away, which I dutifully did. But then it started me thinking, is Parmesan really dangerous in pregnancy? It just didn't seem credible to me. So being an American living in London, I consulted both the American government's view on what to eat and not to eat during pregnancy, and also the British view, and found that they conflicted, uh, which surprised me. And then I checked you know, recommendations in Australia, New Zealand, and uh, other English-speaking locations, and found that nobody could agree on what should be the definitive list of taboo foods during pregnancy. Uh, and being a management consultant, my immediate thought was, well, I'd love to see the data, because often when you're given a list of 20 things, it might be that one or two or three of them are very important, while the rest are relatively less important. Um, and it, it occurred to me that might be why there was a bit of disagreement. So I started tracking down the data. And in the end, I found that I was doing a lot of work to get the answers that I wanted. And so I thought, why not just write these up and, and help other people you know, access the information um, that I'd been accessing? And so that's really how I came to write a book about pregnancy. Well, I'm really curious about you know, some of the, the, the conflict between American food standards and, and this UK food standards. What are some of those? Well, so, you know, really what it boils down to is that it's a question of how conservative you want to be. But ultimately, when I looked at forbidden foods in particular, I found that one category of food was about 10,000 times more problematic than any other food that exists. And that's actually um, meat, particularly either undercooked or, um, or meat that's been sitting out for a long time. And so my only food rule really for pregnancy is just to uh, heat, heat your meat, if at all possible. Hmm. I'm fascinated. Well, let's talk about some of the health concerns you cover in the book. Yeah, sure. So so in the end, um, I ended up coming up with my list of top five recommendations. The idea was I wanted to answer the question, if you were rational, what would you do differently during pregnancy? And I tried to identify the, the top five, uh, just because that's, I thought, a, a, an actionable list for people. Um, and so in the end, the answers really surprised me. I didn't go in with any preconceived notion of what my top five would be at all. 
And just looking at the data, what I concluded was that the top five are try not to drive very much, um, eat as much fish as you possibly can, try to opt for organic food and produce when you can, uh, as I mentioned, heat your meat, and then finally ask for a lead test. So those are my top five, and all of them surprised me. Wow, I'm surprised too. So let's go with number one, try to drive yeah. as little as possible. Is that because of obvious car accident risk? Yeah, you know, you won't find that advice in any other pregnancy book. And in fact, it's not even specifically related to pregnancy. It's certainly not that driving is any more dangerous during pregnancy than any other time. It's more just that if, you, if you're rational and you're trying to look at where your greatest risks lie in general, driving just does have a certain hazard associated with it. And if you get in a car crash, yeah, you might injure yourself. You might injure your unborn baby. So it's nothing specific to pregnancy. Um, and really, I think the, the main reason for me to put it in there is actually just to put the other risks into context, which is to say that if you're not scared to drive, then you probably shouldn't be scared of doing anything else when you're pregnant, because there's nothing even as risky as that, um, looking at all the data about likelihood of contracting various kinds of illnesses or things during pregnancy. So really, I guess the point of having that on there is my message is everyone should just relax a bit and not, not worry so much about uh, hazards during pregnancy. Yeah, I totally agree with you. The, the fear factor is strong in prenatal care. Yes. Yeah. And and it kind of, you know, fills in a void of, of, you know, for information that people really need about what is safe, what isn't safe, um, and about how to go ahead and just, you know, eat what you eat without freaking yeah. out, without having to throw your Parmesan cheese in the trash. Absolutely. Yeah. And so then coming on to my second <laughs> point about e eating fish. So one of the top taboos that I encountered as I asked people, you know, what are you doing differently while you're pregnant? Everybody said sushi. And people that I know happened to be particularly annoyed about that one because they really liked sushi and they didn't like giving it up. Mm -hmm. So that was one that I focused on specifically to try to understand the risks involved. And as I investigated, I found that in fact, uh, the risks for eating sushi are very small. And really what they boil down to is there's a small chance you might swallow a parasite. And that's kind of disgusting, but actually your digestive tract is quite separate from your uterus and the parasites have nothing to do with your baby and the medicine to get rid of them is completely innocuous during pregnancy. So really there is no risk around that at all. Um, I mean, sushi is consumed raw. Mm -hmm. And so technically there is a, a, a possibility of cross-contamination from something else, um, but it's no more dangerous than any other raw food like salad. And in fact, sushi kitchens are often strictly preparing fish. So the chance of contamination with meat, which is really the main source of risk, is very small. Um, I guess the other point about fish that people often bring up is the concern about mercury. And this was a really interesting one where I found the conventional wisdom was just on its head. So people are concerned that mercury is not good for brain development of the baby. And in fact, that is true. Uh, it's an environmental contaminant and it does have an impact. And so ideally, we would all have no mercury in our body. The tricky thing is that mercury levels build up in the body over time. And it takes a long time for then the mercury to leave. And so what a lot of women do is they eat fish up until they're pregnant, at which point they stop. And in fact, that has no influence whatsoever on their mercury levels. Uh, and the, the downside of that is actually that fish is incredibly beneficial 
from the perspective of the omega-3s in, in oily fish. So salmon and mackerel in particular are a fantastic source of omega-3. And if you eat oily fish every day, you're doing your baby an incredible boost to its brain. So really, my recommendation would be theoretically, if you want to be perfect, you might avoid fish until you're pregnant. But at the point that you're pregnant, you should be eating as much as you possibly can, particularly those oily fish. So why do you suppose here in the U.S. it's the number one thing that you have to avoid? I mean, well, I think, I'm, I'm saying number yeah. one, but I'm actually exaggerating. It's, it's on the list and it's high up there. Yeah, I mean, with sushi specifically, I think it just, it sounds, it's raw, so that sounds scary. Yeah. And I think in terms of the mercury, it's just no one realizes that no matter how much mercury you eat, the IQ benefits of the oily oily fish actually outweigh the mercury by several factors. So it's just, you know, a bit of misinformation, I think, is feeding into that. It's a really good example, though, of how standards of care and the standard information that is given to pregnant women um, is oftentimes not actually based on fact. It's based yeah. on culture. It's, it's true. Yeah. And the tricky thing is that the medical profession can actually even sometimes exacerbate these issues. So as I was researching, I'm, I'm clearly not a doctor. I don't touch on any factors that relate to standard prenatal care, which I'm assuming everyone is getting. I was trying to cover topics that are outside the domain of a doctor's expertise, because really when you're thinking about bacteria in the food chain or environmental contaminants like mercury and others I'll come on to, that's not the domain where a doctor is an expert. That's a domain where there are many other different experts and where you need to analyze data to actually understand um, what is dangerous. And so I think doctors can sometimes pass along myths because they have no way of, of being better informed. It's not their fault. It's, just, right. it's not their field. Yeah. 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 Okay. I want to talk about some of the other. So um, yeah, driving, fish. <laughs> fish. What then was we the... have uh, organic. organic. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Obviously, uh, going organic is expensive, and so if you're only going to focus in one area, I'd suggest that green beans and bell peppers would be the two pieces of produce that I would specifically try to purchase organic. Uh, but in general, if your budget conflicts to it, I would recommend going organic during pregnancy. And the reason for that is a specific class of pesticides called organophosphate pesticides. Now, these pesticides are quite nasty, and they've been banned from home use because uh, researchers realized that women who were liberally spraying them around their house were actually having uh, children with lower IQs. But unfortunately, we have yet to ban them in terms of produce, and so they're still sprayed all over our crops. And uh, I found that actually at the levels that most Americans are exposed to, we could be looking at actually measurable drops in IQ as a result of eating all of this organophosphate pesticide. In addition to whatever other health problems these pesticides will cause us. Yeah. Sure, sure. Yeah. And so it's a real shame because organic pesticides, have, sorry, <laughs> organic produce has, has none of these pesticides. So that's why it's a safer alternative during pregnancy. Yeah. Yeah. What else? Keep going. So, keep going, Daphne. Yeah, You're doing great. We talked, <laughs> we talked briefly about heating your meat. I mean, really, the, yeah. the reason there is just there are a couple of nasty um, things you can contract. One is called listeria and another is called toxoplasmosis. And the problem with both of those is that they don't necessarily have a huge impact on the mother, but they have a creepy ability to target the fetus. And so some mothers may not even know they've been exposed to either of those, but then there could be problems down the line as a result. And so really the source of those is meat. And so if you can just kill, the, kill them off before you eat anything, that is the way to go. Which, um, which is specifically yeah. why deli meats are targeted here in the U.S., because people eat them cold. 
Absolutely. So deli meat would be the number one food that you need to be careful of, for sure. You should microwave it first if you possibly can. Yeah, yeah. And what was what was number five? And then the last one is around requesting a lead test. So this is really one, again, that took me by surprise. So we all know that lead is toxic for humans, and we discovered this many years ago, at which point the government very sensibly banned it from gasoline and paint and all of these different uh, ways we were using it before. Uh, the problem is that lead tends to stick around in the environment, and so a lot of water pipes probably are lined with lead, a lot of paint in houses is lined with lead, and over time, this, this problem is slowly going away, but it's going to be many more years before the lead is out of the environment. And so women who are getting pregnant now would have been young at a time when there would still have been lead contamination. And the tricky thing is a doctor, if they even brought this up with you, might ask you, oh, do you have any risk factors? But honestly, I don't think most of us could answer definitively across our entire lives, has there ever been a, a water pipe that had lead? Because we just don't know these things. Um, and so I've estimated about 10% of women probably do have a level of lead that could be harmful to their babies. And so my, my thinking here in terms of requesting a lead test is that if you do prove to have a very elevated levels in your blood, then there is something you can do um, to mitigate that. So we, our bodies store lead in our bones. And you would think then that would be safe, the baby would be safe from that. But unfortunately, when we are pregnant, our baby often has a high demand for calcium. And if for some reason we're not ingesting enough calcium, the baby will literally cause our body to suck extra calcium out of our own bones, which is fine because our bones recover after pregnancy. Mm -hmm. But the difficulty is that then releases the lead into the bloodstream at exactly the moment when it can do the most harm to the baby's developing brain. And so one way you can mitigate that issue is by taking extra calcium supplements to try to keep uh, that lead contained rather than spreading around your system. This is such good practical advice. I really like it. Thank you. Yeah. So what else do you want people to know about the book? We don't want to give it all away, but this is... Yeah. 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 I mean, honestly, I, I tried to look at topics exhaustively. So when I went to, when I set out to answer what are the top five things you should do differently, I realized that implied I had to actually research everything to make sure it didn't make it into my top five list. And as a result, uh, I've tried to make the book more readable by taking most of the research and putting it in appendices of things that I researched and found were not relevant. And so really, I've tried to focus the book in on things that do have some kind of relevance or that are very common fear factors that people might be concerned about. Um, so I have my top, I have pretty much every topic you might want to consider is going to be covered somewhere in the book. So you can use it, you can either read it straight through, or you can use it more as a research guide. If there's something that you're concerned about, you can look it up and find out what my view is on it. Um, How about coffee? So yeah. Coffee. <laughs> Coffee's a good one, yeah. Coffee definitely gets through to the baby. It crosses the placenta, and babies can be born already addicted to, already addicted to caffeine. But it's not really a problem. In the same way that caffeine doesn't seem to have any really dramatic ill health effects in adults, it similarly doesn't seem to do the baby any harm. Uh, I mean, certainly if you're concerned about your baby being on nice regular sleep-wake cycles when it's born, then maybe there's something to be said for trying to avoid some of the caffeine during pregnancy. But really up to normal levels of caffeine drinking, three to four cups a day, there's, there's no measurable impact on the fetus. So it ranks very far low down on my list of uh, potential threats. I remember when, you know, we would tell women that it, 
it could cause some sort of cardiac implication on her fetus, which, you know, we were told that, but it came from kind of nowhere, I think. Yeah, no, there really isn't any research yeah. to support it. It's yeah. been a very, very heavily researched topic. And it's obviously a tricky subject to, to measure because it's hard to know exactly how much caffeine any one person's ingesting. But I mean, there, there just don't seem to be any dramatic in effects. So it's not one that I would be worried about at all. Well, I think with a lot of moms that I know who have more than one child, with baby number one, you know, they're pure as the driven snow. No coffee, no sugar, no TV, no nothing, nothing. They are so good. Yes. And then when they're pregnant with the second one, they say, get real. I am not getting through this without a cup of coffee in the morning. And then Absolutely. they realize that, yeah, that was actually probably fine. <laughs> that's why my book is aimed at people most likely with their first pregnancy, because I think that's when people do have the most concerns. And as you say, try to get an A plus in parenting by being you know, super perfect, but yeah. really it's just, it's, there's no reason to need to do that. Yeah. It's interesting. You mentioned about the second child there. I do have one recommendation, which only applies to people who already have a child, um, which is around a really obscure virus that I had never heard of until I started doing my research, which is called cytomegalovirus. Uh, so it's something which I think about 75% of the population gets at some point in their life, usually when they're very small. It's, it has very minor flu-like symptoms, but it could just be a sore throat or even a cold almost. You wouldn't, a lot of people wouldn't even know that they'd had it. Uh, and so, as I say, most people get it when they're very young because that's when children tend to exchange germs by crawling around and mouthing things. Uh, but if you don't catch it when you're small, the next time in your life you're most likely to contract it is actually when you are the parent of a toddler, because then it's very possible your toddler will catch it from another toddler and give it to you. And the tricky thing is that I said it was almost symptom-free, but if you contract it during pregnancy, it can actually cause birth defects. And it's actually one of the top causes of preventable birth defects. And so my advice to, to women who have another child is get tested and see if you already have antibodies to cytomegalovirus. And if you don't, then you should probably avoid smooching your kiss on, your kid on the lips, try to avoid drool and snot, you know, wash your hands as often as you can. So that's, uh, that was another very surprising finding that I, that I uncovered. So how often does it happen? Um, so do you mean how often do people catch it during pregnancy? No. How often does it uh, result in birth defects? Ah, so yeah, so they, they think about, um, let's see, one in 750 uh, births has some kind of impact from cytomegalovirus. That's which not is nothing. Quite, yeah. yeah, it's high, surprisingly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That one seems really hard to avoid, though, because we're living in the world, you know? <laughs> well, yeah, but hand washing can actually go a very long way. Okay, good advice. I like that. Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. What else? Give me some more. Well, you know, I think I, I think in general, stress is not great during pregnancy. I mean, very minor levels of stress like you would have at work is fine, but they've yeah. shown that women who are under lots of stress all the time, that's clearly unhealthy. Right. And so I really think that part of the point of my book is just to convince women that all these factors I'm talking about ultimately hardly influence the outcome of pregnancy. I mean, based on my research, I've found that most pregnancies turn out just fine. And when they don't, there's typically nothing anyone could have done to prevent it, given our current state of, of knowledge about pregnancy. And so really, 
there's no point in incurring unnecessary stress while you're pregnant. In fact, what you should be doing is relaxing and trying to enjoy it to the extent that you can. I mean, I know it, it can be quite uncomfortable being pregnant, but it's also an exciting time. And I wish we could bring more of that positivity to pregnant women rather than always having them feel like they have to behave in certain ways or give up pleasures of their lives or just be nervous and stressed while they're pregnant. Were you surprised at, you know, sort of the shift that your status as a person or certainly your life took once you became pregnant? I mean, sort of like you were in a position of authority to one being told what to eat and do and being evaluated mm. for all kinds of risks. What was yeah. that like for you with your first? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess given my example at the beginning about the, the colleague telling me to throw away my, my meal, I mean, yeah. people feel very free to give you uh, strong opinions. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess the one where women come under the most fire is with when it comes to alcohol. I know there's a lot of, particularly in the UK, it's more socially acceptable to drink while pregnant, but in the US, it's a huge taboo. Oh my and that's God. a really, it's huge. Yeah, it's Judgment will reign. Yeah. And in fact, that is that ends up being the very longest chapter in my whole book, just covering <laughs> all the reasons why it's such a it's such a drama. I mean, I think the issue there is that governments really have to have a no tolerance stance, because whenever you set a rule, people are often going to stretch it a bit. So mm -hmm. if you say the speeding limit is 65, you're going to have people going 75 and assuming, well, that must be close enough. Right. Uh, so similarly, governments can't, they don't really have the pleasure of describing in detail you know, the rationale behind their recommendations. They just have to say, you know, there's no drinking in pregnancy because otherwise if you say, oh, two drinks are okay, well, then people will have five and, it, you know, that will cause problems. Um, but it's an interesting one. I end up kind of um, on the fence about it, honestly. The, the research is not very good. And the reason is because really to answer a question like how harmful is a small amount of drinking in pregnancy, what you would really need to do is do a randomized controlled study where you'd have to take half the women and randomly ask them to drink more and the other right. half to drink less. And for ethical reasons, you clearly can't do that. And so in practice, it tends to be self-selective. So the difficulty with that being that women who are willing to flout rules and drink during pregnancy may also be doing other things that could be harmful to their fetus, and it's hard to control for that. Uh, one thing I found really interesting is that you can predict what a study will conclude about drinking during pregnancy based on what country the study was conducted in. So for example, in Australia, there isn't really a taboo around drinking during pregnancy. And when they analyze the results there, they don't find a huge correlation with small amounts of drinking and poor pregnancy outcomes, whereas in the US they do. And I really do think that is down to the self-selection problem. Um, so yeah, I mean, the jury is really out on the impact of small amounts of drinking during pregnancy. Having said that, drinking large amounts is clearly harmful. It definitely can cause birth yeah. defects. It is definitely a no-no. So, What do you think about the assumption that is made, you know, probably primarily here in the United States about, well, if she's going to drink during pregnancy, she's probably going to do other things. I mean, it's sort of the way that we look at women. Once they become pregnant, they're, they're who they are kind of shifts. And yeah. the way that she is looked at and evaluated shifts. Absolutely. Yeah. Constant judgment. I yes. know. It's, it's very difficult. It's yeah. you're representing yourself yeah. and someone else. And yeah, it, I, I wish that weren't the case, but it's going to be, it's going to, it's a tough slog to convince people. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's, I guess my book is partly in response to that, trying to be a bit more rational about it and saying, you know, what is actually important versus not. Right. And I mean, really, when it comes down to it, 
there are a few factors which do dramatically impact how your pregnancy goes. One of them is your age, the age at which you get pregnant. And you can't change that once you're pregnant. You know, but no one is scathing of someone who gets pregnant when they're 40, but they might be scathing of seeing them do, eating blue cheese, which is ridiculous. I mean, it's just irrelevant in the grand scheme of things. So, Yeah, but you know, when a woman becomes pregnant at, say, 40, all, she's put into this um, you know, risk basket of advanced maternal age, you know, therefore she is at high risk for all of these things, which some women over the age of, you know, 35 or 40 are at risk for those things. But here in the U.S., pretty much all women, if you're past 35, you are considered a high-risk pregnancy, and then your your interventions are going to be funneled that way. And sometimes it's yeah. the interventions. It's the, you know, preventative measures that we take just in case that are the ones that cause the trouble. Yeah, it's it's absolutely true. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. cause unnecessary fear and stress. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The majority of women over the age of 35 or 40 are probably pretty healthy and most are going to be fine as are absolutely. their babies. Yeah. We yeah. like freaking them out here in the U.S. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 It's, it's going to be tough to tough to change a lot of these old wives tales. I mean, they're really very well embedded. And I think it doesn't help that if you Google a lot of these topics just casually, you get all sorts of misinformation. And this was the, the struggle I had, which is that I found that I had to actually pay for access to academic journals. I had to analyze data myself because yeah. a lot of this information, if you look on very common baby advice websites, they are just full of nonsense. Yeah. And they even have people completely unqualified to opine, opining on topics like what should you eat during pregnancy? They had a genetic, I remember seeing a genetic counselor cited on that topic, which yeah. just makes no sense. It's like asking your dentist for gardening advice. Right. So um, I think I think women need to be a bit more skeptical about what they read uh -huh. uh, and not make decisions based on what the media is currently hyping or what these websites are flouting as, as the advice. I mean, a lot of it is is nonsense, which is a yeah. shame. Yeah. Well, they should read your book and they should read my book. <laughs> and, you know, and there are many others that I've recommended on the podcast that I think, yep, they should read them. They should read a lot yeah. of books. For yeah. sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm also <clears throat> kind of, you know, we use all kinds of numbers in prenatal care to evaluate you know, their their health status, their risks, their baby's health status. You know, we start, we record their weight every time they come in and you know, their size and their belly circumference and their baby's measurements and their blood pressure and their lap value, you know, forever and ever. And that's even before we get into fetal heart monitoring. And, you know, it's all about math. And yes. It's, it's all about math. And it's really tempting for care providers to focus on the numbers instead of the woman. I absolutely agree. And yeah. part of that is because of insurance you know policies. If a provider gives out a you know a certain piece of advice to a woman and something happens and that provider is then potentially vulnerable to a lawsuit, you got to have all those numbers in the file to make sure that you can defend yourself. Yeah. And yeah. it really drives care, you know, because you have to be medically defensible to be a healthcare provider here in the U.S. That's yeah. how that's how it is. You have to be able to defend it in court, and you know more often than not, it's because of the you defend through the numbers. Of course, of course, yeah, yeah. yeah. But that's just uh, yeah, that's not really constructive in terms of improving the outcomes of the pregnancy. That's no, the not issue, really. Isn't it? Yeah, not yeah. so much. Not so much. 
Well, you and I have been talking for quite a bit here, and I'm really, really grateful the technology has held for us. Yes. Um, because it's been a day. Boy, has it been a bit, <laughs> been a day. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you just a couple of more questions. Huh. How would you fill in the blank? Nobody ever told me that. Hmm. Let's see. Do you mean related to pregnancy? Anything hmm. you want. Anything uh, you want. Let's see. Nobody ever told me. <laughs> well, nobody ever told me that I would be having to wrestle with tricky questions about uh, ethics when I was writing a book about pregnancy. So this was an interesting one. When I was trying to come up with my top five list, I was trying to compare apples to oranges, I found. So I was thinking, you know, what's the, what's the risk that something very dramatic happens? You know, how do you compare the risk of something very dramatic happening with a low probability versus something that's very likely to happen but is not such a big deal? And so I had to try to compare apples and oranges. So I had to create my own scale of how to evaluate risk during pregnancy. Mm -hmm. um, and so I tried to be a little bit uh, rational about it. So I, I looked at probability and then I made a score for what's the relative impact you know, of your baby dying versus just having a disability. And then, and then I had to think about the certainty as well of the research. But it was I, I never thought I'd have to grapple with those kinds of issues writing about this topic. But I think it's it is important to be able to compare apples and oranges to ultimately be able to say what's most important. Mm -hmm. And so that was a learning for me. And, uh, you know, it, it showed me that, in fact, not everything in the world can be quantified. You do have to make some some judgments at a certain point. Yeah. And in a lot of situations, it's not, you know, there's a range and there's it, things are not as polarized as we tend to make them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's a lot of room in the middle. Yeah. So then my last question for you is this. Where are you in your life as a mom? Ah, so that's an excellent question. I am, as I said, I have a 10, 7-year-old, and 3-year-old. And as I've been going through this journey, my ultimate goal is to write a series of books. I would love to debunk pretty much every phase of parenting because I find as I go through my parenting journey, pretty much every phase comes with its own set of absurd old wives' tales and conventional wisdom that I suspect might be wrong. And so I've already drafted out my outline for a 0-to-1 book, but actually, I've now shifted focus, and I think I'm going to write a book about teenagers next, Ooh, just because <laughs> I, will come back, I will come back to zero to one again. Mm -hmm. I'm not abandoning it yet, but in terms of my own life, uh, I'm, I'm about to enter that new life phase. And my approach when I'm facing something new and unknown is I want to find out all about it. And so, uh, yeah, that's the topic that's, that's fascinating me at the moment, and I'm going to be curious to, to test my, my findings and recommendations on my own children as they pass through that phase. It's going to be entertaining for oh. me, maybe irritating for them. We will see how that goes. <laughs> can, can I debunk a teenage myth right now? Because I've raised Please. a bunch of teenagers. Oh uh, my God, I've raised a bunch of teenagers. <laughs> <laughs> my youngest is 18. And uh -huh. I think that um, people are really, really afraid of teenagers. They're really afraid that they're going to um, lose control and that their kids are going to be the worst versions of themselves for like a five-year stretch and that it's yeah. going to be really awful and they're probably going to get in a car accident and, you know, go to jail and definitely be on drugs and, you know, drink <laughs> a lot and get pregnant. All, I mean, that's like right. the biggest fear. And right. actually, yeah, no, not so much. They turn out <laughs> to be pretty much the same people that you raised for the first 12, 13 years of their lives, only just way more of it. And mm. they turn out to be really passionate and fascinating and interesting. And 
it turns out to be um, challenging time of your parenting life. Mm. But isn't it all? I mean, wasn't it really of challenging course. when you had to stay up all night all the time? Of and course. Wasn't yes. it really challenging the first time, you know, your kids got lice? I mean, it's all hard. <laughs> it's all hard. But it's all doable. And yeah. I think that people shouldn't project teenage years being awful because it isn't. It isn't. Those are, those are great words of wisdom. And I'm hoping that's what my book will reflect. You know, here are the ways your teenagers could get into trouble, but really they're very unlikely to do so. So uh, I guess oh, I'm hoping they to might. sort of mitigate some of my own stress. We'll they see, might right? get we'll into see. some of that trouble. <laughs> teenagers, <laughs> you know, I'm not going to get real specific here, but teenagers <laughs> do have a tendency of stretching the limits and finding their own version of trouble. But, you know, isn't that part of the job sort of, you know, to... That's what you're supposed to do in those years is figure out how to work it. How do you work that thing called living my life as an ind independent person? And they yes. got to they got to try. They got to try things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Daphne, this has been a really fun conversation and the most important thing that I need to know right now is where can people buy the book? So the book is now available in bookstores around the country, including Barnes and Noble. And then it's also available online on Amazon. Great. Excellent. And it's called Debunk Debunking the Bump. Bump by Daphne Adler. Daphne, it's been fun. And I bet you and I are going to talk down the road, especially when you write that next book. Fantastic. I look forward to it. Okay. We'll talk again. Thank you. Mama said there'll be days like this. There'll be days like this. Mama said. Thanks again to our sponsor, Prep Dish, and head on over to PrepDish.com, common sense, all lowercase, to grab your two-week free trial. Our guest today was Daphne Adler, author of the book Debunking the Book and Find Wherever Books Are Sold. You can learn more about me at Faulkner.com. Tweet me at Gene Faulkner. Email me, Gene at Gene Faulkner. Send me your questions and comments, and please pick up a copy of my book, common sense pregnancy it's everywhere common sense pregnancy parenting and politics is produced by alex ward at sounds like picture studios we'll talk again next week everybody bye-bye